0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's hearings of the House January 6th Committee at which a strong and clear case was made that Trump would not listen to the adults around him standing up for the rule of law, but instead found a motley group of legal charlatans and deranged cultists offering a lawless path to stay in power with the help of a far-right street gang, the Proud Boys, and a violent militia, the Oath Keepers. Joining us to assess the impact of today's hearing is Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld, who studies the capture of frail states abroad by leaders who use violence as a political tool, employing party-linked militias to grab and hold on to power. She did not expect to be witnessing the embrace of violent militias by the Trump-controlled GOP, and is a senior associate in the Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she focuses on issues of rule of law, security, and governance in post-conflict countries, fragile states, and states in transition. She was the founding president of the Truman National Security Project and was appointed to the Foreign Affairs Policy Board, the advisory body of the United States Department of State. And her latest book is A Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security. We'll discuss her article at Just Security, The GOP's Militia Problem, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and Lessons from Abroad. Then, with the Israeli press reporting that Biden's visit to Israel on Wednesday through Friday will be crowned by the Jerusalem Declaration, a U.S.-Israel strategic partnership agreement for a joint stance against Iran. Joining us is Lara Friedman, the President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, who was the Director of Policy and Government Relations at Americans for Peace Now, and before that was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements, and Jerusalem, and the role of the U.S. Congress. Then finally, with a recent poll showing Biden at 44% to Trump at 41% in a 2024 rerun of the 2020 election, we will discuss that depressing and alarming prospect with Gary Jacobson, Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, whose research focuses on Congress and congressional elections. He's the author of Money in Congressional Elections, the Politics of Congressional Elections and the Electoral Origins of a Divided Government, and is the co author of Strategy and Choice in Congressional Elections American Parties in Decline and The Logic of American Politics. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld, who's a Senior Associate in the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she focuses on issues of rule of law, security and governance in post-conflict countries, fragile states and states in transition. She was the founding president of the Truman National Security Project and was appointed to the Foreign Affairs Policy Board, the advisory body to the United States Department of State. Her latest book is A Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security, and she has an article at Just Security, the GOP's Militia Problem, Prows Boys, Oath Keepers, and Lessons from Abroad. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld. So glad to be here, Ian. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us in today's hearings before the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. I must say it ended on a rather intriguing note with... The vice chair, Liz Cheney, saying that Donald Trump had approached one of the witnesses, I think it's a witness we haven't heard from, and he, I think it was a he, uh, didn't take the call, but his lawyer took, took charge of the matter, and then she went on to warn, in effect, that witness tampering is a serious problem, which they take very seriously. That's pretty extraordinary, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we've we've heard now in two hearings that there's witness tampering that might be going on. And um, of course, that's not just a problem, it's a crime. And, um, you know, that crime before looked like it might have been being perpetrated by someone in Trump's entourage. This time it's getting um, pretty clear from Cheney's comments that it might have been the president, former president himself. But, you know, I must add that Uh, getting President Trump on um, witness tampering is a little bit like getting Al Capone on tax evasion. And what we're hearing in these hearings is extraordinary from a president um, trying to overturn the results of a legitimate election to a president willing to coordinate with violent groups to overturn the results of of an election when all other options failed him. Um, And that coordination, while not absolutely... Explicitly connected to the president himself, other than his tweets, has been pretty explicitly connected to people who he was talking with just the days before uh, Roger Stone and, and General Mike Flynn. So, this is really, um, as, as uh, Jeremy Raskin said, it makes Watergate look like a Cub Scout meeting.
0: So, in terms of the work that you've done, though, Rachel, in studying post conflict countries, fragile states, states in transition, uh, states like Nigeria, Lebanon, Colombia, um, Iraq, countries where it's not uncommon for government officials to use violence as a political tool. Did you ever think that you would be witnessing it here in this country?
1: You know, no, I never did. I I thought that my career was about failing democracies overseas. And I was trying to help other countries. It never occurred to me that I would be putting this expertise to use here. But that's my own blinders, honestly. And I think the blinders of of a lot of us in America that think of ourselves as so exceptional. The history of using um, militias by political parties is very common in other democracies. And it's part of why their democracies don't work. Good people don't run for office when the option is not just losing, but being killed um, or having your family threatened. And that, you know, from India to Iraq to um, places like Colombia, we've seen paramilitaries being used by political factions. And the first thing those factions um, try to erase, by the way, are the other parts of their own party that don't go along with violence. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing um, this violence, not just directed against uh, election officials, not just directed against women and African-Americans and Jews and so on, although it is affecting all those groups, but also in very targeted uh, manner, being directed against other Republicans who draw the line at violence and support their country's system of government.
0: Well, we've had a lot of evidence that the intimidation part of it, at least, not necessarily overt violence against political leaders. Although uh, the fact that President then President of the United States, in effect, called upon the mob, not necessarily to hang Mike Pence, but that's that's what they decided. In their chant, they build a gallows. He and he even said, being questioned about that, uh, Trump seemed to indicate that he didn't think that was a problem. That he didn't feel that there was anything wrong with with essentially putting a target on Mike Pence's back. But the other Republican on the select committee, Adam Kinzinger, he's been routinely harassed. His family's been threatened. We know that Brad the Secretary of State of uh, Georgia, was threatened. His family had to move and, and seek protection. And Representative Gonzalez, who was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, his family's been threatened, and his young children been threatened. He decided not to run for re-election. The head of the Arizona House also was threatened, along with his family, and, and a member of his family's own daughter was terminally ill at the time. That the crowd showed up harassing him outside the door. So this is now in our body politic. Right, the infection has already arrived, has it not?
1: That's right. And the reason I I fault myself for not thinking that it would happen here is that it's happened here in the past. We had the Know Nothing Party in the 1850s that used violence and intimidation. We had um, in the 19 teens and 20s scores of political officials from both sides who are members of the Ku Klux Klan. And we knew in the uh, late 50s and 60s after Brown versus Board of Education was decided that massive resistance, which was violent intimidation by the Ku Klux Klan and other groups, was endorsed by a whole series of Southern politicians. Those were Southern Democrats, of course. So this is not new to America, and it is back, and it is back in force, and it is not just Donald Trump. I think one of the things that Americans... Um, need to start wrapping their heads around is just how much militias are being used by local local chapters of the Republican Party to get rid of more traditional members of the Republican Party. I think uh, Republicans in general, you know, I come from a Republican family, I should say, my parents were both Republican, one of my brothers is, they aren't aware of just how much their party has changed in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, the turnover in Congress, the turnover at the state level, and that you're really dealing with a very radicalized group of people now who are not the party of Reagan. You you might have disagreed with the party of Reagan's policies, or you might have agreed. But but what we're dealing with now is a faction of the Republican Party that's taking over that is not a pro-democratic party.
0: And this faction is clearly led by Donald Trump. He is the de facto leader of the Republican Party, is he not? And... He's pretty much unchallenged, and uh, there's even suggestions that he may even announce soon that he's running for president in 2024.
1: You know, I can't really understand why he hasn't announced already, because it would be much harder to remove uh, the candidate of a major political party um, in a lawsuit. We've seen that in Brazil. They did that, for instance, Um, and it goes down poorly, and that makes democracy function poorly, even if the accountability is merited. So um, for whatever reason, he has not managed to do that yet. And that's probably just as well. But I think it'd be good to move these indictments quickly before he does announce because it's easier to uh, indict a private citizen than the leader of one of our two parties. You know, one of the problems is that we only have two parties. If we had ranked choice voting or more open primary system connected with that, What we could have is um, multiple Republicans running against each other, multiple Democrats. You could have your progressive Democrats and your center left and your Trumpy Republicans and your business conservatives. And Americans would both have more choice, but they could also vote for pro-democracy leaders who supported their policies and ideology. That sounds real wonky. Ranked choice voting does not sound like the answer to what we just heard on the January 6th select committee testimony. But in fact, it is one of the answers.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Rachel Kleinfeld, who's a senior associate in the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she focuses on issues of rule of law, security and governance in post-conflict countries, fragile states and states in transition. Her latest book is *The Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security. And she has an article at Just Security, The GOP's Militia Problem, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers and Lessons from Abroad. Well, I'm astounded, though, that and obviously the full weight of the evidence and the, and the way it's been, way it will be collated and presented hasn't happened yet. Since there's more hearings next week, but they're getting towards the end of it. But so far they've built such a strong, and I think glaring case that there was really what amounts to a fascist coup attempt on January the sixth, and uh, it's not gone away. And I'm just somewhat astounded that that's not kind of a unifying message out there. I understand a lot of people on the political left are disappointed with Biden and there may be a lot of passivity in terms of getting out the vote. But surely people sh- could and should be united around th- what what the real threats to to America are, which are pretty glaring, that uh, we could very shortly become a one-party state and we would have a country led by... This fail and criminal president uh, we'd have people like Matt Gates and Margie Taylor green and company as the face of the cabinet I and mean, it's an appalling thought, but it's not i'm not this is not science fiction this is this is staring us in the face isn't
1: it I think that's exactly right and I think um, it's it's crucial to rally the the right and the left uh, who care about our country I think one of the issues that's getting in the way is that um, the it's it's been hard for democracy to deliver to parts of the left that um, are the base. And so they shrug their shoulders and say, well, democracy is not delivering. Why should I come out and vote? And there's a point there. But the fact is it can get a lot worse. I work in a lot of countries where um, political violence is routine, where um, a violent government targets individuals and targets groups of individuals for their uh, race, religion, ethnicity, we we as a country think that we um, might be bad now. And some parts of our country think that America's already doing that. You haven't seen anything compared to what a government can do if it wants to really um, take the gloves off. And I think a second Trump term would be taking the gloves off. There's no doubt, because this isn't just Trump, because it's infected so much of the, of the um, Republican parties up and down. And so I think we somehow have to get um, get folks to vote and to understand that, that uh, it's just essential. But then we need to deliver. Um, we really need to start delivering policies that help ordinary people. It's no surprise that Trump won when you had over 70% of the American public saying that they thought the whole system was rigged prior to 2016. You just can't run a democracy when people feel that it's run for the elite's benefit.
0: Well, but we don't have a democratic tradition in this country, do we, in, in, in the form of the uh social democracy, where you vote for politicians who are stewards of the, your tax money and deliver government services based upon your tax money. I mean, we we have a, a politics that are, involve extraneous issues which are passionately felt, like guns and abortion, etc. So how do you focus p- people on the notion that there's a simple transaction with government. You pay your taxes and you get your services. And we uh, should judge them, uh, our politicians, on what kind of stewards they are of our tax money, uh, and as opposed to essentially having a, a government of telemarketers who spend all their days <laughs> dialing for dollars.
1: Yeah. You know, I think this is a conversation that the, the left has to have within itself and the, the right that is still pro-democratic has to have within itself. Because what we see after populist authoritarian leaders like Trump is a a democratic degradation that happens. And one of the parts of that degradation is that what you get is these polarized extremes that start running. So in Colombia, we just saw an election between a former guerrilla fighter and a real right-wing Sort of authoritarian type uh, who'd been a corrupt mayor prior to that. We saw a similar polarized breakdown in Peru. Um, We've seen it in Italy, where in Italy it got so bad that the left wing party, the five star party, actually teamed up with the right wing party, um, which was a nativist, anti immigrant um, party, and they ruled together um, because the (laughs) edges meet eventually. But this is what you see after this kind of um, populist authoritarian, because both sides say, I want nothing to do with the other side. I cannot make common cause. There's no center that holds. I'm going to go fully on the extreme. And that scares the dickens out of the other side and they do the same thing. And then you get it is this wildly careening country where nothing gets done. It's not that the far left policies get done and it's not that the far right get done. Each gets done for a couple of years and then they get overturned and they just go back and forth. And what suffers is any kind of normality, stability, ability to plan your life in the interim.
0: And your work has made clear, surely, Rachel, that politicians are using, abroad using gangs uh, for political purposes is not exclusive to the right or the left. You've got Maduro in Venezuela using street gangs to intimidate the opposition, and, and likewise Ortega in Nicaragua doing the same thing. And that's exactly what the hearings today were about, were they not the extent to which Donald Trump used a street gang organization known as the Proud Boys. The other other organization, uh, the Oath Keepers, tend to be ex-military, but they are, as the witness who was the former PR person for, for the Oath Keepers, said, they're a violent militia.
1: Yeah. So as you said, you know, we've seen this before in a lot of countries, and it really doesn't matter about the ideology. Ortega in Nicaragua, Maduro and Chavez before him in Venezuela. Um, We see it in Nigeria. We see it in Colombia and Iraq. India India now has 10 sitting leaders in their um, assembly who have been convicted of murder. Um, That's where this leads. Uh, India used to be the world's largest democracy. Freedom House, where I sit on the board, has just downgraded it to partially democratic. Um, When politicians start using these kinds of violent groups, they don't need to commit violence. They can just intimidate. And if the intimidation is credible enough, which it already is, um, that does the job. So it, as you said, is scaring Republicans from running for office. It's probably scaring a lot of Democrats from running for office. It's affecting not just national leaders, it's affecting people running for school board. we've had an awful lot of threats and violence directed at um, you know moms running for school board and One part of this that you mentioned before, but I just want to highlight is that quite often when these people are parents, the threats are against their children, and um, what it does to a democracy when no candidate can be a young parent because They're afraid for their children. That's an entire constituency that's wiped out of both the left and the right. That's the kind of thing we're starting to see in our country.
0: Well, a few days ago I spoke with Jeff Charlotte, who embedded himself with a lot of these militias around the country in Wisconsin and also in some of these Christian nationalist churches here in the state of California and went to demonstrations in Sacramento with sort of neo-Nazis, etc., and And spent some time investigating uh the woman that was shot at the in the assault on the capitol and she apparently was married to a marine and was relatively normal but f- absolutely fell for trump walk, line and sinker and then eventually died and is considered a martyr by these people but the one thread that kept coming through all the conversation from with these people that he that he he, he was spending time with was that they not only expect a civil war, they welcome it. They're, they believe it's inevitable. So I don't know how much more violent it's going to get towards November, but uh, as long as Trump's around, he's made it clear. That was the first half of the hearing, was it not, today, uh, Rachel, where they basically walked you through the fact that all of the sort of adults around Trump, a lot of whom were lawyers, was standing up for the rule of law, and then Trump just found another group of people that were ill-informed and, and essentially lawless, and uh, he went with the latter instead of the former. That was the the lesson of the of the day. I think there were a number of lessons today that that got um,
1: pulled out. You know, and I think you're absolutely right about Trump being willing to go with whomever will tell him what he wants to hear. Um, and ignore all the adults in the room, I think that's um it's indicative of a personality where he really thinks that being a president is being a king, a king, you know the way that my four year old thinks of a king um where your power is unlimited, and there is no rule of law that constrains you, and there are no institutions and rules. I think that 's very much how Trump conceived of the presidency, and so anyone who told him actually we're a democracy, we have laws and we have institutions, you have power, but it 's not unlimited. In fact, it's fairly limited, um, did not meet with his fancy. So, you know, that's been proven about the character of this man who's a former president, maybe a future one. Another thing that um, got pulled out that I just want to highlight because we haven't talked about it is that one of the things that happened on January 6th was that we saw non-aligned militia groups and violent groups and white supremacist groups and so on start aligning. Those of us who study political violence know that that is incredibly dangerous because these groups tend to be rivals. They, they're they fighting for membership, and they tend to try to do more and more spectacular things that are horrible to the rest of us to get members to join them. But um, they tend to be competitive with one another. And when they start aligning, violence can just skyrocket because they can um, – they can work together as opposed to working against one another. And we started seeing that um, in in the lead up to the January 6th rally, but we've continued to see that. So the groups that monitor political violence have continued to see Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, different groups that had different ideologies. Some were white nationalists, some were Western chauvinists, some were militia and anti-government, but very much um, included different racial groups. Now we're seeing them all come together and we're seeing them use mainstream conservative causes, uh, anti-CRT uh, anti, um, rallies, anti-mask rallies, all sorts of things like that to um, recruit new followers. So what we're starting to see are that these regular conservative causes are becoming gateways into a, a real extremist movement. And then the extremist movement is blended in ideology so that it's kind of like extremism light. You don't have to be that crazy to start walking down it there's a lot of jokes, there's a lot of memes and by the time you realize you're fully engaged um, you've lost a lot of your personality and yourself just like we heard today from the um, rioter who lost his house and so on or lost his job um, following his conviction
0: So just in closing then I recently spoke with Gloria Steinem about the Supreme Court's abortion ruling and she made the statement that if you don't vote, you don't exist. What can be done to galvanise around the findings of this committee? And, and we were speaking earlier about the fact that, and that we don't really have the luxury of whining about the the shortcomings of the, the Biden administration because there's such a looming threat out there. So that's my sense is that this is we are at an, an incredibly critical moment. Perhaps nothing as Critical as the as as the eighteen fifties just prior to the Civil War, and we mentioned the fact that those out there on the far right are actually are, they're preparing for a civil war. What's your sense of 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 the best scenario here in terms of political pushback at this critical moment, so that we don't lose our democracy?
1: The absolute best thing would be for the Republicans to clean house internally, because. Um, only by doing that and taking back their party, do do we have a normal politics where the left and right can just fight about policies? You know, I'm of the left. I have strong views um, about abortion and immigration and all sorts of things and and working wages. But um, right now we cannot have those policy discussions because we, uh, if we lose our democracy, we will not have the chance to have those policy discussions. Um, And we've lost democracy before. I think it's hard for Americans to, think about that, it's not the kind of progressive view of history we've always been taught, but we had, in um, depending on how you count it, 10 to 12 states, Jim Crow laws that basically installed a one-party state throughout much of the South. You could not vote that party out. You could have different flavors of that party, but you couldn't get rid of them, not until the Voting Rights Act passed. Um, and that was because of the disenfranchisement of African Americans, but also Um, a lot of working class whites, and also just a system in which that one party rule was entrenched. And because of that one party rule, other things happened nationally because they controlled so many states that affected our national politics. In that case, it was the Democratic Southern Party. Now it is a Republican Party. And we are again in a situation in which we could enshrine one party rule at the national level or at the state level for a very long time. And if it's at the state level, it'll be in the senatorial level because that's how our elections work. And so um, we really do need to realize there's an inflection point. Jim Crow lasted, uh, depending on the state, 75 years. Um, we do not want to go back to that kind of a system. And we are the generation that's going to decide that.
0: Well, Dr. Angel Kleinfelder, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld, the Senior Associate in the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace where she focuses on issues of of law, security, and governance in post-conflict countries, fragile states and states in transition. She was the founding president of the Truman National Security Project and was appointed to the Foreign Affairs Policy Board, the advisory body, to the United States Department of State. And her latest book is A Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security. And she has an article, at Just Security, the GOP's Militia Problem, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and Lessons from Abroad. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Israeli press reports that Biden's visit to Israel on Wednesday through Friday will be crowned by the Jerusalem Declaration, a US-Israel strategic partnership agreement for a joint stance against Iran. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lara Friedman, who's the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Previously, she was director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now. And before that, she was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements in Jerusalem, and the role of the U.S. Congress. And she frequently briefs members of Congress, administration officials, and others in the foreign policy and national security community and is regularly published in the U.S. and Israeli press. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lara Friedman.
2: Thank you. Very happy to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Jerusalem Post is uh, is reporting uh, that the, there's an agreement uh, including between Israel and the United States including a joint stance against Iran's nuclear program and regional aggression to ensure Iran never attains a nuclear weapons. And this is apparently about to be signed, I guess, tomorrow, Wednesday. So give us a sense of what, what do we know about this pact because there's a concern amongst other, many who have expressed that President Biden is, will be later joining in the Gulf summit in Riyadh, where he'll meet with MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, and, and you know bow before him and beg him to turn on the oil spigot. But the quid pro quo might well be that the U.S. makes some kind of security deal with Saudi Arabia against Iran. So, where does this deal that is about to be signed in Israel stand in relation to that other deal that many were concerned about?
2: Thanks, Ian. I mean, to be fair, we're we're still in the realm of speculation here, right? But what we're seeing, um, and it, it hit the news just a little while ago, it's in right now in Jerusalem Post and Times of Israel, what we're seeing is, is the kind of news that really does validate, I think, the predictions of, of a lot of analysts, including myself, about what this visit would be like, at least on the Israel front. And I I should be clear, I don't know if they're signing something or they're announcing something, but we're hearing the term Jerusalem declaration. And there's a fair amount of of detail out there. What what I think was clear in advance is that the purpose of this visit from in terms of the Israel, the Israel part of this visit. Is for the Biden administration to bear hug Israel, right? This is about demonstrating that the Biden administration is the best friend, a better friend than than the Obama administration, a better friend than the Trump administration, right? It is the true friend of Israel, and it stands shoulder to shoulder on the things Israel cares about. And the you know the 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 thing that's generally problematic in the U.S. Israel relationship, setting aside Iran, is the Palestinians, and it's clear the Palestinians are not even on the table for this visit. Um, but what is on the table is Iran and trying to assert, um, I think that we are all on the same side. There may be some differences in the details of how we think things go forward, but fundamentally we all agree on the objective, which is preventing a nuclear armed Iran and you know, some, some, some statements suggesting an absolute standing shoulder to shoulder. Um, and the other piece of it, which is referenced in at least one of the articles is this, this regional architecture which has been the, the news um, of the past month or so. In Washington, we have legislation in both the House and Senate, which has been sort of snuck into the National Defense Authorization Act in both the House and Senate, which means it's going to pass into law with really no public debate or, or discussion, which is the idea that you double down on the Abraham Accords by creating a regional security architecture, that is anchored by and supported by the United States that really um, enmeshes all of the Abraham Accords countries and tries to bring more countries into it with the idea that they stand together against um, the Iranian threat. Um, And that seems to be um, built into whatever is gonna be announced in Jerusalem as well.
0: Well, apparently uh, Biden will first meet with Defense Minister Benny Gantz and get a briefing and they're going to discuss uh, the Iron Dome system, a new um, iteration of it, an iron-beam laser-based missile defense system. And by the way, a lot of people have wondered why Israel is not supplying the Iron Dome to, to uh, Ukraine, and that's obviously something of contention there because the Israelis have been sitting on the fence not condemning the Russians. So that may well come up, but then... After that, he's going to meet with two American-Israeli Holocaust survivors at Yad Vashem, and then the next day on Thursday, he'll meet with uh, Lapid, who's now the Prime Minister. And then on Friday, he's going to go to uh, Bethlehem to meet with Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. There's been a lot of questions coming from Palestinians about whether or not He'll meet with the family of the slain Israeli journalist. Uh, what do you think the chances for that are?
2: Yeah, I, I'm not going to speculate. I, I I don't know honestly. I'm I'm less interested in whether in, in whether he meets with the family, and I'm more interested in whether or not you know the administration is willing to to do something more significant than um, a review of the Israeli and Palestinian um, reports and then a sort of whitewash, which is what we've seen so far. I mean, the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem called. the the U.S. um, report that came out of looking at the bullet and then reviewing um, the Israeli and Palestinian reports, they called it a whitewash. Um, There's another Senate letter today um, demanding answers about that review because it is is so far from um, an independent or transparent review um, of of the the incident. Um, So I I don't know. I, I would clarify on Iron Dome. I think it's interesting just to note that a couple of days ago Uh, I believe it's the Ukrainian defense minister said that that Iron Dome actually isn't what the Ukrainians want right now because Iron Dome in its current configuration wouldn't protect them against the kind of missiles that are being shot at them by Russia. Um, So just to clarify, I don't don't know if that's a a point of contention on the agenda, since now it sounds like Ukraine is actually saying that that's not a point of contention.
0: Right. But Israel still is pretty much sitting on the fence, aren't they, in terms of not making a powerful statement in defense of uh, Ukraine.
2: Certainly. uh, Absolutely. Uh, Whether uh, it is not clear to me whether that is a point of contention with the U.S., but certainly from the perspective of of Ukraine, um, the Israeli the Israeli uh, public statements and positioning so far, I think, has not been where they would like it to be, um, just certainly based on on press reports. Um, But honestly, I think the bottom line, if you look at the the framing um, going into this trip from the Biden administration, the purpose of this visit isn't to deal with this sort of, it isn't to deal with problems in the relationship. The purpose of this visit is to showcase the strength of the relationship, which is why a Jerusalem declaration makes perfect sense and fits into what a lot of people I think are concerned is going to come out of a Saudi visit or might subsequently come with the Emirates with security guarantees. It isn't clear how far this administration is willing to go. The Abraham Accords were fundamentally transactional, right? The The Trump administration was prepared to provide a lot whether it was weapons or U.S. recognition of of the Western Sahara, they're willing to provide a lot in order to entice countries to normalize with Israel. If the goal here now is to deepen and expand those accords and get more countries to join, and that really does seem to be the Biden administration, they they seem to have bought onto that 100%. It's sort of like, you know, Trump did everything wrong in the world, but on this one thing, he was absolutely right, and we are going to double and triple down on it. It really is, the question is, what will the U.S., be willing to put up because it's still fundamentally transactional. Um, And I think if you look at uh, the Defense Act, which is the name of the legislation that would create this regional architecture, if you look at the reports about this Jerusalem declaration, it, it really does sound like the U.S. is getting closer to to promoting what is I mean, I don't know how to translate regional architecture. I don't know how different that is from a regional defense guarantee, a regional defense pact. It seems like we're edging more and more towards something like that.
0: But the Abram Accords, I thought that they were largely an attempt to shift the debate away from the Arab-Israeli struggle to a kind of Arab-Iranian struggle. And in doing so, in order to get Saudi Arabia and the Emirates to uh, recognize Israel, that would... would involve selling out the Palestinians. So is that dynamic still in play?
2: I, I think that that I think it's true. I think it's one can correctly observe that for Israel, the Abraham Accords are a are a double win, right? On the one hand, they draw near. They've always wanted to normalize with the Arab states more publicly. Many of these Arab states, they've had much more normalized relations than people understood, but they were all, you know below eye level you know security and intelligence and whatever so now they're they're more public they've wanted that for a long time and now they're getting it without having to do anything on the palestinians at the same time this is fundamentally also about iran and it's about creating a regional um, regional pressure, regional, um, you know, finding the, the, the confluence of regional interests that are completely separate from Israel-Palestine. So it, it's a win-win for Israel because it deals both with the Palestinians by shunting them to the side, marginalizing them, diminishing their importance, and really driving a truck with Abraham Accords license plates right over them back and forth. And for the Arab states, it's been, it's transactional. They, they've they gotten enormous benefits. I mean, look, the, the, the president's going to Saudi Arabia, who he said he would absolutely treat as a pariah state. I mean, that's, you know, partly because of oil. It's largely because of, of the price of oil. But, you know, Israel has been pushing for better relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. This is part of their goal of normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia. Um, I think, you know, the fact that Biden has, has been very quick to emphasize he's going to fly directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia, which is going to symbolize, he says, that the changing of the regional uh, dynamics, that he doesn't have to stop someplace else, that Israel, that is Saudi Arabia is going to allow a plane flying directly from Israel to land in Saudi Arabia. Um, the, the, the normalization of Israel's ties in the region is it, it's the two prongs. It's both about. I think diminishing and marginalizing the Palestinian cause, and, and really taking Palestinian um, interests, grievances, rights off the table completely. And it's about this regional um, organizational structure against Iran, which does reflect the a confluence of interests with with the Arab states involved.
0: Well, just in closing, though, Lara, I mean, I don't know whether you saw the 60 Minutes interview with the former intelligence deputy to uh, former Prince Nayef who was supposed to be the crown prince uh, and was essentially a victim of a coup by Mohammed bin Salman who jailed him and confiscated his wealth along with the wealth of a, m- a number of other uh, wealthy princes. The idea that President Biden is going to go hat in hand to beg Mohammed bin Salman to turn on the oil spigot which May be impossible because you know nobody really knows what kind of reserves Saudi Arabia has, and how much they're borrowing against what may or may not be there in the, under the ground. But the long and the short of it is that the 60 Minutes piece, the same hit team that that killed uh, and dismembered Ashoji was sent to Canada to kill this guy. So he says that MBS is a sociopath and has no human empathy. So. Surely this is the ultimate test of Realpolitik versus Biden's initial moral outrage at uh, the murder of Shoji
2: look it, 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 this is a, a demonstration of realpolitik both for Israel and for for, for Biden. I mean, look, I, I, I've been doing Israel- Palestine issues long enough to remember the arguments being made both from Israel and from hardline supporters of Israel and the United States saying you can't make peace with the Palestinians until they have a fully democratic, accountable liberal society in accountable democratic government, right? Except that, you know, Israel doesn't care about those things when it's people they want to make peace with. Um, it's it's there's there's an enormous amount of hypocrisy there. The the fact is that the the interest right now, the 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 the, the, the abundance of interests that Israel has in rapprochement with the Gulf in general and Saudi Arabia is the big prize. And the desire of the Biden administration to demonstrate that it is as pro-Israel or more, more pro-Israel than its predecessors. I mean, let's be honest, there's not that many more things you can deliver to Israel. I mean, we delivered an extra, an extra, you know, it's billions of dollars in aid, billions in extra for Iron Dome and for this and for that. There isn't that much you can. So this is the next level up. They're, they're leveling up from Obama's uh, Obama's three point eight billion dollars a year of aid. So here we are.
0: Well, Lara Friedman, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And again, I may speak with Lara Friedman, who's the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and prior to which she was director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now, and before that was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements and Jerusalem, and the role of the U.S. Congress, and she frequently briefs members of Congress, administration officials, and others in the foreign policy national security community. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into a recent poll that shows Biden at 44% to Trump at 41% in a 2024 rerun of the 2020 elections. We passed up on the
3: stand We spoke up was not when Although I wasn't a- said I was his friend which some surprise. I spoke into
1: his eyes I
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is background briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gary Jacobson, Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, whose research focuses on Congress and Congressional Elections. He's the author of Money in Congressional Elections, The Politics of Congressional Elections, and The Electoral Origins of Divided Government. And he's the co-author of Strategy and Choice in Congressional Elections, American Parties in Decline, and The Logic of American Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gary Jacobson. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a a poll that's just come out that has a a matchup between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, another repeat of the last election in 2024. And Biden's at 44% approval and Trump's at 41% approval. So I find those numbers both depressing and alarming. Uh, It's remarkable that Trump
3: has maintained as much support as he has. Uh, given the revelations uh, going on right now, but also over the last 18 months or so, 18 uh, months. So, yeah, he's he's maintained his support among Republicans to a remarkable degree. Uh, and on the other side, uh, Biden has, uh, uh, has dropped pretty dramatically in the polls since the beginning of his administration. Um, so his numbers are down. People are unhappy with him. Uh, they're not any more happy with Trump. So I think that uh, were there to be another contest between the two, it would be very much um, uh, people voting against uh, the candidate they don't like rather than for the one that they do like.
0: And in terms of the drop in Biden's numbers, does that indicate you've already got a disadvantage in midterms? uh, The public tend to vote against uh, the government in power and holding the White House. So that's the convention. So the Democrats have, have an uphill climb there to begin with, but you have to add to that what appears to be a kind of what demoralized uh, Democratic elected electorate. How would you describe it? Well, it's it's going to be hard to say.
3: Uh, clearly, Democrats are dis- a lot of Democrats are disappointed with Biden. Whether that's going to uh, discourage them from voting which is what really matters these days is who turns out uh is, is an open question because uh although they don't like biden uh, biden's numbers are down democrats support for the democratic party is not down uh appreciably democrats support uh in the um uh, in the generic polls generic congressional election polls democrats uh very few of them say they're going to vote for Republicans. So it's not like they're turned off by their party. They're turned off to, to a certain extent by Biden. They're disappointed with him, but that hasn't made them enthusiastic about the Republican Party. So it's uh, it's a question of whether or not uh, they're they are sufficiently enthusiastic about their own party to show up at the polls. And something like the Supreme Court's abortion ruling uh, probably helps in that uh, in that regard. And also um, Trump's involvement in the campaign helps in that regard because. Uh, nothing unites the Democrats uh, more than opposition to Trump. And if, uh, if, if voting 2022 uh, is a vote, it's, uh, something of a res- referendum on Trump as well as Biden, then I think that works to the Democrats' favor in terms of getting their side to participate and vote. Whether that's going to offset really uh, uh, a really unhappy electorate with regard to the economy uh, is a different question.
0: But I think the, uh, the alarming statistic surely is in terms of the, the drop in polls and Democratic support and Democratic enthusiasm is amongst the young, the Democratic voters younger than 19, 34. Their numbers are going down, aren't they?
3: Again, the numbers in, uh, uh, in support of, or in approval of uh, uh, Biden have gone down. Uh, their voting intentions haven't changed. They haven't become more Republican. They're still uh, uh, primarily uh, supporting Democrats. And again, the question is whether they will turn out to actually vote. And with young people, you always worry about that because they tend to have a lower turnout rate in any case, and especially at midterm elections. Um, this was not the case in 2018. It was a remarkably large turnout in 2018. Young voters wanted, uh, were voting in much higher numbers than they had, say, in 2014. The previous midterm. So, whether it looks like 2014 or 2018 is going to make a huge difference for the Democrats. Uh, if it looks like 2018, that will cushion, the, cushion some of the loss, but uh, um, it certainly doesn't help to have uh, Biden that unpopular among them.
0: So, you mentioned earlier that how odd, to put it mildly, the fact that Biden's poll numbers are in a a rerun of a race against Trump is Biden's at 44 percent and Trump's at 41 percent. And yet you've got the revelations coming out from the January 6th committee and more damaging revelations coming out today. And eventually they'll do a report where they put it all together. And presumably if we live in a rational world and we're not completely polarized in post-truth America, then you would think that that would bring down Trump's numbers. So what explains the fact that he's close his numbers are so close to Biden?
3: Uh, well, because Republicans have yet to abandon him in great numbers, you still have uh, seventy seventy five percent of Republicans saying that uh, Biden's not a legitimate r- winner that Trump was a legitimate winner. You have uh, very large majorities of Republicans saying that uh, that he's not guilty of anything yet they, uh, that is the the message hasn't gotten through the people who have stuck with Trump through four or five years of uh, revelations that uh, we, we thought, we might have once thought would have destroyed his political career. They just don't. Uh, they're sufficiently committed to him so that they you know, view all attacks as partisan. They don't believe the, uh, the mainstream media. They certainly don't believe anything Democrats say. And they do tend to believe what Trump says. Now, there may be some uh, erosion of that support because of these uh, revelations. It's not going to be on a huge scale. You know, so far, it's barely perceptible, if at all. Uh, and I'll be very interested in looking at the numbers you know, over the next month or so you know, when uh, when all all the shoes have fallen. Uh, but you know, their their commitment to Trump has been pretty steadfast despite all sorts of revelations. And this may not um, do any more, much more, than the previous ones. Uh, so the, uh, tr- Trump's kind of b- baleful influence on American democracy is, is uh, not fading yet.
0: Well, then, if in spite of the revelations that Trump conducted a fascist coup attempt uh, on January the 6th that came very close to succeeding, and as Basie's entire post-election on a lie that he won an election that he clearly lost and that that lie is metastasized into a bedrock belief amongst, what, 70% of Republicans. That is pretty grim, and if you can't change that and if truth can't intrude upon that constituency, then the only choice the Democrats have is to inspire a massive turnout, right? Isn't that the only... Aren't they up against a lot of voter suppression?
3: I that that remains to be seen. There are certainly attempts at voter suppression in the works, but uh, in, in the past, those attempts have sometimes backfired because people are lazy about voting, but if you tell them that they can't, and they, uh, they sometimes get upset about it and say, oh, yes, I can, and they'll, and they'll jump through the hoops that they have to jump through in order to vote. So we we don't know what the, um, the effectiveness of, uh, of voter suppression uh, efforts this time around. And I'm not sure um, that they're going to – well, yeah, we will see. But one of the things that those efforts do is to mobilize people on the other side to organize, to overcome them. Uh, and so there is a kind of an offsetting effort. Again, that that relies on people having a, a strong incentive to do that, being upset enough about, uh, the, uh, about Trump or the possible uh, – having elections taken from them, having their vote taken from them. Um, being a strong enough incentive for, you know, to mobilize people, um, we we really don't know. We, we will see.
0: But what do you think it will take to get a, a strong turnout? Because I would have thought that we are at an incredibly critical moment in in this country's history. You know, the the realization of how close we came to a kind of a fascist coup and how. It could be repeated, and they, you know, Trump and company have learned from their mistakes and may get it right next time. And if they can institute all these voter suppression laws, and if the Supreme Court, in the next session, comes up with this ruling that will give state legislatures total control over elections, uh, where court challenges won't exist, the prospect of a one-party state emerges. So, I would have thought that you could make a strong case that uh, American democracy is on the ballot in November. Well,
3: I'm sure Democrats will be making that case, Uh, and it's one of the things that they will have to inspire them in their base. I think that uh, there isn't, there's certainly concern, uh, especially among Democrats, of uh, of Republicans governing from a minority position by suppressing the vote and by uh, overturning uh, elections or overturning the will of the voters. It hasn't until it actually happens. uh, It's only going to mobilize uh, uh, a smaller, uh, more conscious, politically conscious portion of the electorate. Um, I think that even in a in a a very red state, if or in a well, even even Republican, ordinary Republican in a in a swing state, would rebel if the popular vote was overturned and replaced by. A state legislative vote. Uh, I think that's uh, that, that's a step that's wildly radical, uh, and that would, uh, I think, generate an enormous uh, outpouring of uh, of resistance. I've, I'm trying to imagine a state legislature that would put itself in that position, um, and it's. Uh, I suppose it's possible to imagine if you get enough of the uh, the Trumpist Republicans elected to the legislature, but I still think it's a stretch to think that that is a uh, uh, a near possibility. And until people perceive it as a near possibility, it's not going to have the motivating effect that uh, you might expect it to
0: have. But I'm kind of puzzled or even astounded that anyone would vote for Donald Trump after the evidence we've seen and after his disastrous tenure. And then on top of that, he clearly loses an election. And and against all the advice that he got that he lost, uh, he hoists this lie. And it's clearly incredibly cynical and anti-democratic. And he basically hired a bunch of street thugs and right-wing militias to be the tip of the spear and organized them to probe the capital, and then provided the bodies to storm the capital, and wanted him to even go with them to somehow declare himself president. I mean, we're talking about this is, this is Hitler and Mussolini stuff. This is what I don't understand is we have rampant criminality on display. And instead of putting this guy in jail, which is where he should be, he could be the next president of the United States. I just find it astounding.
3: Well, because there are, I don't know, 40 percent of the country that um, uh, perceive an entirely different reality. They think Trump's presidency was a big success. It was kind of undermined by covid we had a booming economy and low unemployment. Uh, uh, they felt uh, they were being culture- their, their, their cultural status was back. They uh, they loved him for his enemies because they think Democrat- they think of Democrats as a bunch of socialists who are going to uh, impose you know Venezuela on us. They um, see him as a barrier to that. Uh, they uh, they enjoy his attack on the mainstream media. Uh, because they see the mainstream media as all those East Coast elites that look down on them uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, treat them as second-class citizens, um, they are willing to uh, buy what he says rather than what, uh, uh, what everybody else reports. Anybody with any sense reports. So there's a whole mindset out there that supports uh, Trump. There's a uh, there's a media uh, if, if you want to find. Uh, News reporters who will or news reports that will kind of support that position. You can find them on the internet. You can find them uh, on, on Fox News and some of the other uh, cable news networks. So it's there is this uh, infrastructure of um, of right wing media that uh, make money by keeping people excited in uh, on the uh, on Trumpian themes. Um, you know the bo- the, the porous border, for, uh, for example. Things that work to uh, keep their support for Trump. So you have to. You you and I look at the world in a particular way, uh, and uh, we think we're right. They look at the world in a very different way, and uh, they don't trust us. Uh, They don't. They don't believe what we say, uh, and they don't observe what we we observe, or they uh, discount it, or they uh, uh, say it's not important. Uh, You know, say yeah, that's Trump being Trump, et cetera, et cetera. They make excuses for him. So, so that 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 way of thinking um, uh, is is out there. It's not going to be erased very soon. It's not going to be eroded very quickly. Uh, And so, it becomes part of the political reality that we have to deal with.
0: Well, Gary Jackson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Gary Jacobson, who's a Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, whose research focuses on Congress and the congressional elections. He's the author of Money in Congressional Elections, The Politics of Congressional Elections, and The Electoral Origins of Divided Government, and is the co-author of Strategy and Choice in Congressional Elections, American Parties in Decline, and The Logic of American Politics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for
2: now.